www.fasttravel.com or call 530-885-1307. Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope. Heard here on Life Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord. Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday and Wednesday at noon, here on KKXX. Up next on KKXX, it's Hope for Today with David Hawking. You can contact Hope for Today at one 800 75 Bible. That's 1 800 75 24253. What can a believer do if they're being persecuted in their own home by an unbelieving spouse? How do we respond to those who say that water baptism is essential for salvation? What does the Bible say on the subject of limited atonement? And how can Jesus be the Son of God and God at the same time? Welcome to Hope for Today, the Bible teaching ministry of David Hawking. On today's special question and answer broadcast, we're diving into our vast archive of question and answer programs to hear David tackle some very challenging questions we've received over the years on the Christian faith. And David will get to those questions in just a moment. First, though, if after today's program, you find that you've got some additional questions of your own or would like more information on what we tackle today, let me encourage you to head over to our brand new website, davidhawking.org, where you'll find David's teaching resources on just about anything you may be wondering about when it comes to the Christian faith and God's Word and how to live as a believer in this crazy world of ours. You'll find books and booklets, video and audio teachings, and a ton of free downloads. You can even listen to our most recent broadcast right there from the website, including today's question and answer program. Again, it's davidhawking.org. Check it out. All right, let's get to those Bible questions. Well, welcome everybody to our monthly question and answer program. And we got a lot of great questions, don't we, Jim? Good to have you back. It is always good to be here. One of my favorite times in the David, uh, can we dive right in here? This, yes, let's do it. This first question says, My husband is not a believer and continues to mock my faith in the Lord and my desire to go to church to hear God's word. He says that I love God more than him and screams at me. Please help. For obvious reasons, I'm not divulging my name, but I will listen to your next question and answer program. Oh, boy. Well, uh, this isn't the only one we get. We have a lot of trouble out there, Jim, in terms of marriage, what the Bible refers to as an unequal yoke, um, a believer married to an unbeliever, and it it never is pleasant, never. But there is some specific instruction in 1 Corinthians 7, I'd like to read, uh, beginning at verse 12, it says, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now, people right away say, well, then it doesn't come from the Lord, then I shouldn't obey it. No, what he means is the Lord didn't comment on this situation, namely a believer with an unbeliever. But the Holy Spirit has led Paul, certainly, to give us an answer on this subject which the Lord did not speak about. It says, if any brother, that would be a believer, has a wife that believeth not, 
and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. The woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, that means set apart, by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. What that means is that your unbelieving partner is set apart for God to work on him through your marriage to him. Because God uses the married believer to reach the unbeliever, unbelieving spouse. It says, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. They're separate for God to work on because you're the believer and you're still there. That's why you shouldn't leave. The next verse, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7 says, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister, meaning a believer, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, we don't like recommending divorce and separation ever. But if an unbeliever willingly departs from the believer, then that believer is not under that bondage of that marriage again. That's very important to understand. But also, uh, a lot of the reasons are uh, not clear in people's discussions about it. Uh, for instance, this particular lady has got a real tough problem. Uh, she wants to go to church. She loves the Lord. Her husband doesn't. He mocks her. He gets mad. In her further discussion, she mentioned about things that he wanted to do, that she wouldn't do it because it was Sunday and she wanted to go to church. Mm. So my answer to her was, if your husband wants to be with you, which apparently he does, then you ought to be with him. I said, what you ought to do, you can listen to the Word of God many, many times, radio, uh, throughout the day, Internet. Next time he brings something up on Sunday morning, then uh, you tell him, uh, I'd, I'd be delighted to go with you. You know, sometimes we forget that a husband is won by the conduct of the wife. That's what First Peter 3 says, that if you're married to an unbeliever, a guy that's not obeying the Word of God, they can be won by the conduct of the wife. And that's very, very interesting. So I hope that brings some help. I want to also say that in our book, Good Marriages Take Time, that Carol and I wrote, the last section we deal with five major problems is what to do when your partner does leave you or is no longer responding to you. So it'll give you some specific help. Good book. Good marriages take time. Bad marriages take more time is the title. David, in this uh, next question, it says, in your monthly newsletter, you wrote an article on why dividing Jerusalem is so wrong according to the Bible. I appreciate your radio broadcast and your articles in the newsletter very much. Many of my co-workers say that Jerusalem should be an international city and not in the possession of Israel, and that this is what the United Nations has already proposed. Is that correct? Well, this was a great letter. A lot of folks um, have communicated with us about the same problem, and I appreciate their response because that's what I wanted to engender by that article in newsletter uh, because they are talking about dividing Jerusalem as well as removing uh, Jewish families out of the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria. Now, let's get one thing straight. Mohammed, we have no record whatsoever he was ever in Jerusalem or ascended from the Temple Mount. That is all fabrication. There's no proof of that whatsoever. But in the Bible, Jerusalem is mentioned 811 times, a little over a 1,000 if you count all its other titles like City of Truth, City of David, City of Our God. 
uh, even Zion, about 152 times, it's called by the name Zion. Jerusalem is a place that God chose to put his name there, and he says, forever. Uh, he also makes it very clear that it's the eternal capital of the state of Israel, the nation of Israel. And uh, it never has been any other way. I know a lot of embassies, because they want to compromise with the Islamic world, put their uh, embassies in Tel Aviv. They don't belong there. The capital of Israel is Jerusalem. And uh, about the United Nations, the lady is right. In 1948, when the fledging new United Nations uh, responded after the United States quickly uh, accepted the state of Israel, uh, its official name, by the way, is Eretz Israel, Land of Israel. Uh, the United Nations uh, recognized them as a valid national group on the planet, but did not include Jerusalem because they felt it was an international religious city. The United Nations has also restated that case. It doesn't make it right. It's not biblically right at all. But uh, the lady is correct that the United Nations has proposed that as though it's some sort of answer to all the people's concern over the religious holy sites within Jerusalem. Jerusalem belongs to Israel, folks, and that's what the Bible says. The next question, David, I'm sure that you have dealt with this question before, but we are attending a church that believes quite sincerely that the Bible teaches that water baptism is essential to salvation. They have used Acts 2, verse 38, Acts twenty-two sixteen, and 1 Peter three twenty-one. Their arguments seem quite convincing, but we are hoping you could give us an answer to these uh, questions. Now, let me read these verses. In Acts two thirty-eight. it says, Then Peter said unto them, this is the day of Pentecost when the church was born, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost. Now, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues or the varying spiritual gifts. It's the word doreon, which is referring to the Holy Spirit himself. And that's the promise that God gave uh, to uh, the Lord gave before he ascended into heaven. And verse 39 says, This promise is unto you and your children, and all that are far off, and as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, did he say that baptism is required? No, he did not. He just said that all believers should be baptized, and that is true. It says, for the remission of sins. Well, the Greek preposition, ice, uh, also has in this particular grammatical construction very often the meaning of as a result of. So forgiveness of sin is really coming as a result of your repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, what he did for you. Your baptism is an outward confession and testimony of obedience. Uh, the passage over in Acts twenty-two sixteen is Paul's recounting of his conversion through the efforts of Ananias. And in Acts 22, verse 16, he mentions that he was told this, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, folks, if water baptism washed away your sins, then why in the world would you ever need the blood of Jesus Christ? That's right. It's the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. 
We are cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. The Bible says it many times. What he's talking about is having called on the name of the Lord, then be baptized because the sins are washed away by calling on the name of the Lord, not by water baptism. But perhaps the most serious uh, challenge to those who are hesitant about the requirement of baptism for salvation is in 1 Peter chapter 3 concerning the flood of Noah. It says, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the like figure, that's the Greek word antitype, is referring to the flood. Everything in the flood died. When you get baptized in water, it's picturing the death of the old man, your old life. Now, he even says in this passage that when he means baptism saves you, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer. That's a Greek word, apologeo, or apology. It's a defense of a good conscience toward God. So I really don't believe that these passages do what folks sometimes say they do, and that is argue for water baptism being a requirement for salvation. When Jesus said in Mark 16 that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized, he said that he that believeth not is condemned. He did not say he that believeth not and is baptized not. So to put this together, all believers should be baptized in public testimony of their faith. It's an act of obedience to the Lord and picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior and what happens to us spiritually when we come to know the Lord. I do not believe it is a requirement for salvation. But having said that, I also don't believe that you should try to get out of it. Hmm. I think we ought to be obedient to the Lord and get baptized. David's next question says, our pastor teaches that the modern state of Israel has nothing to do with Bible prophecy because the Jews who are there are there in unbelief. This is true. Well, we don't believe it's true, but a lot of people do, and uh, a lot of pastors do. But let me make this clear. According to Ezekiel 39, verse 29, and Zechariah 12, verse 10, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured on the nation of Israel. Uh, it even calls them inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's going to be poured out on them, and they will look on him, the Messiah, whom they have pierced. That's what it says. Now, if that's true, and that happens at the end of the day of the Lord, or Armageddon, then how in the world could you argue Anything but that the modern state of Israel going back to the land, becoming a nation, is nothing but a fulfillment of Bible prophecy because they're to go back in unbelief if they're going to be there as unbelievers in order to believe in the Lord. Sounds like a related question, David. Uh, isn't the church called Israel of God in Galatians 6.16? No, it's not, but I understand the confusion. It's a verse that is commonly used by those who believe the church has replaced Israel in God's prophetic program. Let me read verse 15 and 16 of Galatians 6. It says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. 
Now, by the way, when you circumcise your baby, it's not the faith of the child. It's the faith of the parents in the Abrahamic covenant that's being pictured. The next verse says, as many as walk according to this rule. That means knowing that circumcision is not essential for salvation. Peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now, many people misquote this when they read it. They say, peace be on them and mercy, the Israel of God. But that isn't what it says. They leave out the conjunction and the preposition. It represents two groups. The first group would be Gentile Messianic believers. The Israel of God are Jewish Messianic believers, both of whom are in the church of Jesus Christ today. So I hope that helps. Our pastor is godly. Next question starts. And a very scholarly man who earnestly believes in what he calls limited atonement. He says that Jesus died for those who will believe in him. He calls them elect. Yeah, believers are elect. They are chosen by God, chosen before the foundation of the world. Is limited atonement a true biblical teaching? There are many of my friends who believe this. I believe in both limited atonement and unlimited atonement. You say, oh, you're just trying to cop out of the problem. No, I'm not. (laughs) I think you'll find the answer, if you have Jewish background, in the atonement procedures of God's Word. Because on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when we have two goats that are representing, first of all, one goat is killed and his blood is put on the mercy seat by the high priest only once a year, Uh, Then he confesses the sins of the people over the live goat called the Azazel and lets it go into the wilderness, thus picturing God sending away our sins forever and you're never to get this goat again. Our Lord is both. He suffered outside the gate bearing the reproach of all of us, says Hebrews 13. But that atonement is what we call propitiation. That is, the blood is put on the mercy seat that satisfies the righteous wrath of God against sin. The whole nation of Israel is propitiated on the Day of Atonement. Does that mean they are redeemed? The answer is no. If during the year you do not bring your individual sacrifice for sin, you are guilty of willful sinning. It's a rebellion against the sacrificial system, and there's no more sacrifice for you. All of those who commit willful sinning are facing the judgment of God in hell, not heaven. They are cut off from Israel forever for their rebellion. So you see, only believers are redeemed. That would be limited atonement. That is, redemption applies only to those who believe. But propitiation, the satisfaction of the righteous wrath of God against sin, which is the word used for the mercy seat, that is for all people. We know in 1 John 2, 2, it says, He, our Lord, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. David, in this uh, next question, it says, We need help with the study of the person of Jesus Christ. Is he both God and man, or is he a man who is God-like in what he says and does? How can he be the Son of God and be God at the same time? Thank you for your consideration of our question. I think sometimes a statement or a particular point of doctrine that's mentioned on somebody's broadcast is what creates this problem for us here at Hope for Today. If you want to hear a message on why the Son of God means he is truly God, uh, you want to get our Truth About Jesus series. There are three in it, 
And the second message is called Son of God. Don't miss it. It's in DVD as well with PowerPoint. It's very powerful. And you will understand what the Bible really teaches on the subject. Jesus has as his true DNA, morphe is the Greek word, God. It says in Philippians 2, uh, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form, the morphe of God, did not think it robbery or a thing to be grasped or paraded that he was equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He actually laid aside the exercise of his divine attributes to become man and, of course, to go to a cross and die for our sins, for which we're all thankful. He is certainly God-like in every sense of the matter because he is God. Second Corinthians 5.19 says God was in the Messiah, reconciling the world unto himself. He's called the true God in 1 John 5. 20. He's called our great God and Savior in Titus 2.13. We are told that uh, the word, the revelation, the logos is God, John 1.1, and that he became flesh, John 1.14. We can do a lot more on this issue if you're interested. I do recommend our studies on this matter, and uh, we have quite a few of them, and wow. Great question. Very important question, particularly considering all of the uh, movies and such that are coming out questioning who Jesus Christ is. Hey, David, next question here. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, we learn about six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination unto him. The last one is that he soweth discord among brethren. Can this refer to the church we attend or how about our family relationships? We need your help and wisdom. Well, I'm not sure what... Uh, happened in their church, but uh, their letter was a little longer. I tried to pull out of it sure. uh, the essential elements. Um, it is a terrible thing when division happens in a church. Uh, here's what we read. Uh, I'm reading Old King James, Proverbs 6, 16 um, through 19. There's four verses here. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and, I'm assuming this next statement is the seventh one, he that soweth discord among brethren. Now, does that refer, and can it refer, to the church? That question was in this letter. The answer is, of course it could. But it depends on what the discord is about. Uh, what if the church itself is teaching heresy, and the members of the church are trying to confront it, and then they're accused of sowing discord? This is happening, Jim, in many churches. So I appreciate the fact that we got the question. And then what about a family? Well, sometimes people use this to teach divorce. And in the New Testament, uh, the only righteous reason for a divorce uh, is immorality, sexual immorality, or a possibility in chapter 7 of an unbeliever departing, leaving, and doesn't want to live with the believer anymore. But to say that, uh, well, you can divorce if you're, if you're proud, 
or if you lied ever. I mean, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So I would say it does not apply to a family if you're talking about divorce issue, but it could apply if you're discussing things and your partner and you are not really getting along, so there's always this tension, arguing over it. Arguments, a proverb says, are like the bars of a castle. They don't draw people together. They're going to make that couple pay a terrible price for constant bickering, arguing against one another. Sometimes we just need to give it up. Thank you, David. And friends, you're listening to Hope for Today with Bible teacher and author David Hawking. And we're grateful that you've chosen to be with us today. Now, before we bring our time to a close, Matt and I want to tell you about a terrific resource from David you don't want to miss. This month, we wanted to make sure that you are fully prepared to talk about Israel as events in the Middle East continue mm. to unfold. It can be almost too easy to get caught up in what people say on television. Especially with a heated topic like this one. Right. Yeah. Not only do we have to ask if we can trust those sources, we also have to ask if those sources have any basis in God's word. The authority of God's word, my friend, that is at the heart of hope for today's ministry. My dad, using the Bible as his foundation, explains the truth about Israel in his book, Israel Chosen by God, and his booklet, What the Bible Says About Israel and Its Land tools to deftly and with biblical accuracy give detailed responses. And with the Bible as our foundation and compassion as our temperament, that's it. Israel chosen by God and what the Bible says about Israel and its land will help us share why Israel is and will always be important to the Lord and why it should be important to us as well. That's God's heart and we want to have God's heart Amen. as well. Yeah, Israel chosen by God right now is $15 and what the Bible says about Israel and its land, that's $5. Yes, order at our new website where you can see all the Israel resources we have for you. Or order when you call us. Get these powerful resources by going to davidhawking.org. Again, that's davidhawking.org. You can also order by calling us at 875-BIBLE. That's 875-242-53. In Canada, call 888-75-BIBLE, 888-75-242. Two four two five three. Now, if God has put it on your heart to give a gift, a donation to this ministry that's uh, above and beyond the cost of any resource you might purchase, you can send a gift by mail to Hope for Today, Box thirty nine twenty seven, Tustin, California nine two seven eight one. In Canada, at Box one five zero one one, RPO Seven Oaks. Abbotsford, BC, V2S 8P1. And know that whatever gift you send today is going to help us bring you Hope for Today programs in the days and weeks ahead. And if you'd like to become a regular monthly giver, we'll gladly help you make the arrangements for that when you contact us. Uh, We're not talking about a huge financial commitment. Anything you can do will be tremendously appreciated. A gift of $10, $20, $40, $50, or maybe $100 each month, whatever God enables you to give, will go a long way in helping us remain on the air where you live and around the world at davidhawking.org. And gifts to hope for today, of course, are tax-deductible. And friend, when you reach out, feel free to share any prayer request you might have. Our team is always very happy to lift your needs before the Lord. 
Well, that's it for today's broadcast. And next time, David is back in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll see you then, right here on Hope for Today. You can send your letters and donations to Hope for Today, P.O. Box 3927, Tustin, California, 92781. Again, Hope for Today, P.O. Box 3927, Tustin, California, 92781. Or give them a call at 